Well, good morning. It's, it's such a, a joy to be with, with every one of you this morning. I trust and pray you're here, you're ready to worship the Lord in gladness and in truth. And um, whether or not you're prepared for this morning's lesson or the sermon today, I trust that your hearts will be continued to be prepared to, to hear the truth of his word and so we can grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and our focus is going to be verses 4 to 10. Now, this is could be considered the next section, which we are studying. Uh, I would consider it a chunk, okay? This is a chunk of Scripture that we are merely going to skim over <laughs> this morning because there's so much here. And I think you'll notice as we go through it, you'll probably say, hey, Chris, um, why don't you talk more about that word? Well, I can't if we're going to get through this entire section, uh, but it'll be a joy to, to go through together this morning with you. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. So I trust that you've turned your Bibles, you're ready, and we'll begin. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning which you have brought us to uh, according to your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for these dear people. Uh, may we together uh, receive what you have to teach us this morning from your word. Lord, if I have anything to say um, that is not accurate, uh, may that not be received, but may your word, may the truth be received alone to the glory of your name. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. First Peter 4, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Let's read this together. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Perhaps you can see why we call this a chunk of Scripture instead of a little section of Scripture. There is so much here, but we're going to try and get through our our skim notes this morning. I wasn't able to, to get uh, some things printed for you. We had some printer errors this week, but we have a, a skim outline here for us this morning. So the title will be God's Stones, His Building, His People, His Praises. And in light of what we've just read, our theme will be why and how God's people should glorify Him according to 
rock theology. Now, that's not to be silly, okay? We're not talking about rock music, but there is rock theology in the Scriptures, and we'll see that this morning. So, that brings us to point number one, Christ and His church, verses four to five. Look at our opening phrase, and keep this in mind as we walk through this section. What's the theme of First of Peter? Stand firm in or through suffering. And with that in mind, our theme being how we can glorify him according to rock theology in the midst of, of suffering. Look at the first phrase here as we come to our text. And coming to him. And coming to him. That's such a sweet phrase. A synonymous term, really, for salvation. This idea of coming to him is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Remember? What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's in direct reference to salvation and coming to him. This is a most appropriate image of salvation. And just this phrase should be a reminder to us that the entrance ramp to salvation is not the church, contrary to Roman Catholic opinion. The entrance ramp to salvation is not the church. It is Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Unless Christ is the head of the church, you can't understand what the church is about. And so Peter begins with meeting Jesus, believing on Jesus, coming to him. How? How are we to come to him according to this text? What does it say? As a living stone. Now, (laughs) an unusual term, perhaps, to say the least. I mean, if you didn't know much about rock theology and you heard that, that probably wouldn't mean too much to you. Come to him as as a living stone. But there is a lot of rock theology in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to go through all the Psalms, but in so many Psalms, we see it. Psalm 46, Psalm 62, Psalm 63, Psalm 1914. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God is called a rock. Speaking of stability, often equated with the concept of a refuge, security, strength. But, but then we notice here, okay, it, it's a living stone. You see, Peter had been transformed by the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like every believer is, correct? The resurrection changed those fearful and trepidatious disciples into bold proclaimers of the gospel. And so Peter, after sitting at the feet of Jesus for three years, seeing his suffering, seeing his resurrection, calls Jesus the living stone. That's the one that we come to. But verse 4 says, this living stone is rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You see, you can't understand the church until you understand who Jesus is. Because he is the head of the church. 
Christ is portrayed as this resurrected one, this living stone, this one that can be trusted. His stability and his life is real and vital. And though he has been rejected by men, we need to see God's perspective on him. Correct? We need to see his perspective. And God sees Jesus as, according to our text, choice and precious. That's God's view of his son. Precious, really, the word precious is better translated honored. Timon in the Hebrew, honored. And this word choice is eklektos, which we should all be pretty familiar because we've seen it in First Peter, right? At the beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Those who are chosen. And also in chapter 1, verse 20 of First Peter, speaking of Christ as chosen before the foundation of the world. It's this eternal relationship that God had with his son, that Jesus would be the savior of sinful mankind, that in the eternal Godhead, there is this eternal relationship where Jesus is seen as both choice and honored in his work of saving a people for the glory of the Father. In the sight of God is how we must view Christ first and foremost. We don't view him as our homeboy or as our buddy or even as our friend, first of all. We need to view him first and foremost as God views him. And so this is in contrast to how Jesus was seen in his first coming. Thousands of people saw him, but only few believed in him. In fact, the vast majority, including the religious leaders of his day, rejected him. Beloved, this is a stone that has been rejected. Has been rejected. I think you see that loud and clear in the news and in our world in which we live. And this isn't just, by the way, any stone, as verse 6 says, a choice stone, a precious corner stone. This isn't just any rock you'd find in your backyard or a boulder of some sort. This is an architectural kind of, of word. Choice and precious amplifies this architectural concept. This is a corner stone. In ancient architecture, the builders were most careful in selecting each stone. And it's very likely that this is the kind of work that Jesus did with his father other than wood carpentry, it was likely stone masonry. And that was how homes were built back then. So this kind of stonework was, was done with precision and excellence because if it wasn't just right, the alignment of that cornerstone, every stone laid upon that starting marked stone would have been out of place, out of balance, unstable. And so Jesus in this metaphor is shown to be a carefully selected stone, precious and honored in the sight of God. And God's opinion of Christ is what matters to the believer, while the world rejects this corner stone. At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, This is my Son, listen to Him. This is the one in whom God was well pleased. Now, verse 5 shows us that this description 
we see of Christ is in concert with God's description of his people. Look at what it says. You also are what? Living stones. It's here that we see the doctrine of our union with Christ. A description of a Christian is a description of the relationship with the Lord. So if Jesus is a living stone, we too are depicted as living stones. In other words, we share in the resurrected life of Jesus. And it's here that we start to understand that as we come to Jesus, we don't come to him singly. But God in his mercy is calling a people, a chosen people, precious and honored to himself, not on the basis of us, but on the basis of his mercy, as we'll see soon in verse 10. And so our union with Christ is shown as he is a living stone. And and we as living stones are now being built up as a spiritual house, the text says. It's spiritual because it's alive. It's animated. It's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. And this word house is a word often used to refer to the temple. Second Samuel 13. And Jesus speaks of the temple on Mount Zion as the house of God in Matthew 21 and 23. And so because of what he's going to say in verse 9, it's a reference to our being built into a temple, a spiritual house. Because a temple is a place where God meets with man. And that is mediated by a priesthood. A priest is someone who, in short, in simple, without going too far into it, a priest is someone who connects God and man. So what we're seeing is that when we find our life in Christ by coming to him, by believing on him, verse 6, we are being built into a temple, a place of worship. Our union with Christ aligns us eternally in a real living relationship to Jesus and God is using that work of saving a people for himself through his son to accomplish this building up of a spiritual house that is alive and animated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. See, all God's people are priests now. And all the foreshadowing in the Old Testament of a temple and before that a tabernacle all the while mindful that God doesn't inhabit a house built by human hands as if he needed anything, but was temporarily where heaven and earth would meet and where priests would mediate God's covenant with man offering sacrifices. You know, the blood of sheep and rams. All to make atonement for sin over and over again for centuries and centuries and centuries, God would meet with the people there. But now, in the, in the dawning of the new covenant, in the coming of the word of God, in the incarnation of Jesus, we are being built into a spiritual house. A new temple functioning, not as some class of Levites, but a new temple functioning 
But all God's people are now priests. And our task is explicitly given in verse 5. What is our task as a spiritual house? What does it say according to verse 5? We are to be what? To, to offer up what? Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. Now, consider the words of Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of the Spirit of God. So this spiritual house (laughs) is a new and greater temple. You know, we we wonder what it would have been like to see the temple, right? In all its glory, in all its Solomonic glory, that version. To see that massive veil, to understand the vastness of the sacrificial system, the mercy seat, the holy of holies. Doesn't it make you, when you study those passages, it's like, whoa, what must that have been like, Right? Or maybe we even think of Jesus at the temple, not not to cleanse it, but rather to cancel it. He has, he was, he's, he's done with it because he was going to take its place, right? Because access to God was no longer through the sacrificial system of the Levites, but through the blood of the new covenant, the cross of Jesus Christ. So now we meet God through the person and work of Jesus Christ because he is the living stone though rejected by men, choice and honored in the sight of God. And and we come to him as living stones and are being built up into this spiritual house, a holy priesthood, where God meets with man and we have a task. The old temple is obsolete, superfluous. It's not cleansed, it's canceled. And we are becoming part of that new temple, that new house, according to Ephesians 2. 19. And please keep this in mind, dear Christian. Being a temple of the Holy Spirit is a community project. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why we pursue sanctification even together according to 1 Corinthians 6. Yes, is it individual? According to Philippians 2, yes, but it's also a community project as we are being built up in Christ. So we have another way of meeting with God, another avenue of sacrifice that isn't temporary, but an atonement that is lasting and and eternal. And that gives us our task to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You might be thinking of Romans 12 at this point. That speaks of our bodies being living sacrifices as we serve the Lord with the strength that He provides, seeking to honor Him with our lives as we dedicate all that we do to Christ. So the point is this. If we're talking about Christ and His church, we're talking about a spiritual union that's unbreakable, 
There's no place in our understanding of the church for a rogue Christian or even a buffet approach to the church. A buffet approach to the church doesn't have anything that correlates with being built into the living stone to share in his resurrection life and to be built into a house together. How do you do that as a rogue Christian? You don't. You can't. Listen to Spurgeon. Well, I know there are some who say, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. And I say, well, why not? The answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite sure about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as being obedient? There is a brick. What is a brick made for? It's made to build a house. It's no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's being kicked about on the ground by itself as it would be a part of the house. So actually, now as this is Spurgeon, this is not me. So actually, it is a good-for-nothing brick. Now, I, please, I do not call other believers a good-for-nothing brick. I don't suggest doing that. Spurgeon goes on. He says, So you Rolling Stone Christians, <laughs> I don't believe you're answering the call to which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live. And that is to be being built up one stone, one brick upon another to the house of God that offers spiritual sacrifices and praises to our living God. Together. <laughs> and at this point, let me just say, praise God for the meaningful discipleship that we have here at North Lake Bible Church. No, I didn't say perfect but progressing and onward. And we see it happening in every ministry of this local body, by the way. Dear Christian, there should be no rogue, lone ranger Christianity in the body of Christ because we are living stones being built up. There's a spiritual house for a spiritual priesthood to offer these sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Well, that is Christ and his church, but let's look at Peter's further reasoning and support for what he's told us. Let's look briefly at verses 6 to 8. Salvation and stumbling. Salvation and stumbling, according to verses 6 to 8. And really in this we see there's only two responses to Christ being the cornerstone. Only two responses. And so it's, it's here where, where Peter provides the proof of what he's saying, but he also talks about the response to the truth you just heard. And so he gives the scriptural foundation, verse 6, for this, or because this is contained in Scripture. Listen, <laughs> one of the reasons you and I should have confidence in the Scriptures it's because Jesus had confidence in the Scriptures. It's because Peter did. It's because the apostles and the prophets did. And you see it all throughout the Scriptures. 
If you were to just pull the quotations of Scripture within Scripture out, it's like half your Bible. And so he quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16 here. He says, I lay, better, better translated, I appoint. It's a construction word to put in place so that all the other stones can be built upon it. And it's, and in its context, it's a judgment here on Ephraim for disobedience and unbelief. So Peter grabs this concept in the perfect passage because it's what he's trying to say. It's a scripture about disobedience to God and the danger of rejecting the word of God and failing to believe God. The whole point of Isaiah, by the way, is the prophet calling the people to not trust in foreign alliances, but that they would trust in God alone for their salvation. Ephraim didn't do that, and so he is condemned in Isaiah 28. And so Peter tells us this is what the Old Testament had always promised, that God had appointed a stone, a cornerstone, by the way, held in honor by God. Some translations say it's an ark stone, this cornerstone, but but I think cornerstone is the right word because someone's about to trip on it here in verse 8. And it's hard to trip on something that's up high, wouldn't you say? So I think I'm going to stick with the, the translation of a, a cornerstone, you know, for a building project. So the, the idea is that Jesus is the foundation. And look at the promise here in verse 6. Someone tell me what the promise is that is given here in verse 6. We who believe upon him, believe, stand firm upon this cornerstone. What's the promise? Yes, will not be disappointed. It says, he who believes on him will not be put to shame or disappointed. Isn't that so cool? Aren't you so thankful? How many of us love, enjoy being put to shame and disappointed? So Peter believes that if you build your life upon Jesus Christ in this spiritual house that's being built, assembled of all true believers, that you will be honored and not ashamed. And remember, he's writing to an audience that was persecuted, right? D defamed. That was being cast out of their Jewish community, scattered by Roman persecution. So much conflict and so much dishonor and shame that's threatening around them. And he's reminding them that simply, if you trust in this cornerstone, the one that God honors and the one that God chose, you too will be chosen and you too will be honored. And the way that you get there is by faith. Faith in the living stone. And you will never be put to shame. So in other words, Believe on this precious cornerstone and you will be vindicated by God himself. And verse 7 says the same thing. This precious, honored value, who's it for? Who's it for? Yeah, for believers. For you who believe. Peter pounds away here at the preeminence of faith. He wants us to see that faith is the key to joining your life into this building. Not by works righteousness. Not by anything you can do. 
not by any good works. It's only by faith in Christ alone that you can be saved and added to this spiritual house. Faith. Faith. Listen to Thomas Brooks on on faith. He says, you need to give faith elbow room. You ever need elbow room? I know I do. He says, you need to give faith elbow room. If you would do gloriously, look to faith. Now please, don't get sidetracked by this quotation. It is the object of our faith by which we are saved. And the object of our faith is who? It's Christ. But here in which is the avenue in which God saves his people through faith. So he says, if you would do gloriously, look to faith. It is a noble grace and will enable the soul to do gloriously for God. Faith will carry a man over all difficulties. It will carry a man through darkness however long. Faith will carry a man over a mountain of difficulties no matter how high. In Hebrews 11, you see the saints doing gloriously, but how? By faith. They stopped the mouths of lions. They turned to flight the armies of aliens. They waxed valiant in flight. They refused the riches of Egypt, all by the power of faith. Oh, faith will enable men to do gloriously. Glorious faith will see a smiling father beyond the dark cloud. Though men are at a loss, yet God is not at a loss, says faith. And though the arm of flesh is weak, his arm is strong, says faith. And though the work is too hard for the arm of the flesh, it is not too hard for God, says faith. Faith carries a man gloriously through all. If you would do gloriously, abound in faith. Let faith have elbow room. Faith is the entrance point to standing before God on that final day and not being ashamed. And the opposite is verse 4, rejected by men. Verse 6, being put to shame. Verse 7, those who disbelieve. And then Peter reaches back to the prophecy of Psalm 118, one of Jesus' favorite texts to preach. And Paul uses it several times. The stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. (laughs) And he weaves Isaiah 28 right back in a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you need to give elbow room to faith. You need to apprehend who the Lord Jesus is and the salvation that is freely offered through faith in Him. And if you're a believer, you need to continue to give faith elbow room. Believe the Word of God. Look to Jesus in times of trouble. Don't be disheartened. But understand that your final vindication is linked inseparably and eternally to the final vindication of the living stone. Jesus Christ. This unbreakable, sure foundation. The believers, 
uh, sorry, the, the builders in Jesus' day, you know, the religious elite, uh, the Pharisees, they looked at that stone and said, nope, not for me. In fact, even worse, they tripped on it. They stumbled over it. Oh, the pride of man cannot take it. We, you and I, once could not take it. We tripped over it. We stumbled over it. And we said, nope, not our Messiah. But the builders in Jesus' day, this is what they said, and on that final day, they will be put to shame. And so will every single person who does not believe on Him. And in the end, verse 8, they stumble because they were disobedient. You see that? They were disobedient to the Word, and to this end, they were appointed. <clears throat> Such a provocative statement, wouldn't you say? Whoa! To this end, they were appointed? To understand it further, you could, you could read John 10.26 when Jesus tells the Pharisees who are boasting in their unbelief, Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. The final boast of unbelief, though, is defeated by the sovereignty of God in the doctrine of election. And that's profound. We can't completely understand that in our weak human mind because you are responsible if you refused to trust in Christ Yet God has appointed that you would disobey if that's, in the end, what you do. Dear class, <laughs> that's difficult, right? Even in our most sanctified hearts this morning, that's difficult. But it's silenced. It silences our boastful mouths if we do not obey the Word, according to verse 8. Romans 9.20 is clear. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? The clay can't speak back to the potter. And so we have Christ in His church. Salvation and stumbling. The only two responses to Christ being the cornerstone. And then finally, people and a purpose. People and a purpose. Here's Peter again now, knowing this Bible so well, and, and by the Spirit, he reaches back and weaves in Isaiah 43 and Exodus 9.16. And these passages belong to Israel. Okay, look at, the, look at the terms he uses here. Chosen, royal, holy nation, people for God's own possession, privileged, belonging to God, entrusted with the covenant and the Torah, supposed to be a light to a lost world, but they failed. Did they not? <laughs> and now God, through Christ, is saving both the Jews and Gentiles in building His church. He, he's not done with Israel. Just read Romans 9-11. through 11. He's not done. But when Israel is finally converted... It will be through the same gospel that is preached to you and me. And in the meantime, we, the church, <laughs> are, are in this privileged position of, of being 
chosen by God of mediating salvation to a lost and hopeless world and among one another, of being that set-apart nation, of being God's choice possession, all a people for God. We were not a people. That This is that, that, that wonderful concept of being adopted. You were once not a people, right? Ezekiel 16, you were once that, 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 that baby that was cast along the side of the road. But then God reached down and he cleansed you and he adopted you and he brought you into his family. You were once not a people. Now you are people of God, belonging to God. All is for a purpose. Here's the people. What's the purpose? What's the purpose in the middle of verse 9? To, 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 to do what? Proclaim his Excellencies. You see that? Dear, dear Christian this morning, <clears throat> all the so that's in your Bible <laughs> need to be underlined, need to be circled. So that. We need to know what's the purpose. Okay, here's the amazing gospel. Here's Christ. Here's the glory of God. What's our response? <laughs> so that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, for you are not a people now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Question. <clears throat> Is the end of this passage anticlimactic to you? I think such a statement is only anticlimactic to you and boring to you. doesn't mean much to you if you have not received mercy. Because the mercy of God in Christ is what opens our eyes to the preciousness of this living stone and to every other living stone we are connected to. That's the glory of Christ in His church. That's exactly what we are experiencing in our fellowship as a local body of Christ as we're being built into a spiritual house stone by stone in order to offer spiritual sacrifices of worship, of service, of thanksgiving to God with one another until that day when we'll do it perfectly in the glory of heaven. The church, the building of the body of Christ, this is to be a foretaste of heaven, foretaste of glory, this unity that we have in and because of Christ. So what's our application? Just two points. Marvel at his goodness. Why do I say goodness? Because really the, the, the word excellencies in your Bibles is really just another word for his goodness. And, and what is good is excellent. What is excellent is good. Okay? So like if your children clean the kitchen or, or someone does a job and you say that's good, you're basically saying that's excellent. So be careful when you say it's good. <laughs> It's excellent. Excellent. Perfect. Good. Right? Genesis 1, in the beginning we created all things. It was good. It was very good. Marvel at his goodness. Think heavily upon these truths. He is the precious living cornerstone, honored in the sight of God. And we are honored. And because he is the living stone, he made us alive to be living stones built in and upon him. And just as a footnote, as a side note, sometimes as we're stacked upon each other, sometimes that might get a little uncomfortable because of our, you know, sin and pride. 
but we're being built into a living house that exists to glorify the living stone. You who believe, you who are, are born again to a living hope, as chapter 1 says of 1 Peter, you who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you will not be put to shame. <laughs> That's the promise. You will not be disappointed on that day because you are His. He holds you fast even when you lose your grip. His building work is not in vain because, verse 9, He's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's drawn you into His marvelous light to see the glory of the Gospel, knowing full well that you are a great sinner, but you have a great Savior. Oh, be found this week marveling at the goodness of God. And the more you marvel at the goodness of God, the, 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 the easier those complaints and those discontents and those everything just kind of goes away. And then you have to reevaluate and then you have to marvel at his goodness again that next hour because you failed that hour. <laughs> marvel at his goodness. Number two, final. Speak of his goodness. What's one huge, gigantic, ginormous reason why we why he did all of this of building a stone upon stone upon his resurrected son and, and whom we find the forgiveness and redemption? What's the reason why he did all this? What's one of our spiritual services of worship to Him for the good and salvation of mankind? We're just looking at one right now. Verse 9, again, so that. So that you, I, the church, may proclaim the excellencies of Him who did what He did. <laughs> the Psalms constantly say, Tell of his goodness. Speak of what he's done for you. To your neighbor, to your co-worker, your unbelieving family member, your children, to one another. That's also a part of being built up as a spiritual house. We are to be reminding ourselves and speaking of the goodness of God in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't you love singing? We're going to sing in just a couple minutes. When you proclaim that, not only to God, but you're proclaiming it to each other. You're saying, this is the truth. This is our living stone upon which we stand. You will not be put to shame. But it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me. We fear man more than we fear God. I'm afraid of what people are going to think and do and say. Well, look at the audience in First Peter. Oh boy. Peter knew their hesitation. Peter knew in the midst of suffering. But he says, no, no. We proclaim the one who saved us and the one who's coming again, the judge, the king, our Lord. Speak of what he's done to you. We're his living stones. We're his building. We're his people. Therefore, we are a spiritual house that heralds his praises as we speak forth his excellencies in the gospel to one another and to a lost and dying world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you, you only, as the psalmist says, are our rock and our salvation.
our stronghold. We shall not be greatly shaken. Why? Because you are the living stone, the cornerstone, the foundation upon which we, your living stones, stand. And it's all by your grace and the faith that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to to live out the truth of the lyric of that hymn. On Christ, the solid rock, help us to stand because all other ground is sinking sand. Lord Jesus, bless your dear people in the, the next hour of the hearing of your word. May we live to exalt you, to marvel at your goodness, and to speak forth your goodness that you would save a wretch like us, call us your own, and bring us to glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.